A couple years ago, I was sitting down, uh, taking a break from my job at The Athletic Media Company, and uh, I was drinking a non-alcoholic beer from Athletic Brewing, and I thought, uh, hey, this this could be a partnership because I'm, I'm an ad wizard, and so I put those two things together and Took a couple years, but now I get to read ads for Athletic Brewing and uh, their non-alcoholic beers, and I'm excited about it. And I'm excited about it because I like the product. I like the product for a variety of different reasons. There are times where I'm uh, the designated driver, and that is it's perfect for me. I don't feel like I'm, I'm missing out on a whole lot. There are also times where I'm not the designated driver, but it's going to be a long day of gabbing. And I don't necessarily need to have 10 IPAs in a row. So I will mix in an athletic, non-alcoholic beer. And I I feel like I don't miss a beat. And it allows me to pace myself uh, the way I want to do it. It's perfect for beach days, music festivals, baseball games, camping, late nights. Uh, They have a ton of different varieties. They have uh, Light. They have Upside uh, Dawn Golden. They have Run Wild IPA. They have a Hazy IPA. They have Summer Seasonals. They've got a a Lemon Rattler, Ripe Pursuit. I don't even know what a Rattler is, but now I want to try it. I feel bad that I haven't tried it. So this summer, ask for the only non-alcoholic beer you need to know, Athletic. Head to askforathletic.com to find it near you and use the code TA2024 to get 15% off your first online order. That's code TA2024 at checkout for 15% off. It's near beer, non-alcoholic beer, and it tastes Listen, I grew up with some funky ones. Uh, those didn't taste like beer. This tastes like this. This is good non-alcoholic beer. Exclusions and conditions apply. Athletic Brewing Company, fit for all times. Today's episode of the Total Soccer Show is presented by Electric E-Bikes, makers of the number one selling e-bike in America. They are truly awesome. Thank you so much to Electric E-Bikes for sponsoring today's show. Welcome to the Total Soccer Show. My name is Taylor Rockwell, and today we have got some questions that need answering. It's a listener question show. To answer those questions, I am joined by Scottish Graham Ruthven. Hello, Graham. You continue to be Scottish, yes? Hello, American Taylor Rockwell. Yes, I am. Um, last time I checked, I, uh, every morning I check, yes, I'm still Scottish. <laughs> every morning he checks. <laughs> and rounding out the crew is Italian Joe Lowry. Hello, Italian Joe Lowry. I really thought about going full-on Nintendo and doing a Mario or a Luigi accent. I decided to pull out of it at the last minute because uh, while I am, yes, in the middle of my Ryan Bailey International Apology mm-hmm. Tour, I think is what we branded it as, Yep. Um, I I want to put that to the side because, Graham, I have to know what goes into the Scottish personality check. Like, mm-hmm. you down a shot's worth of iron brew. It's like, yep, still tastes good. What yeah. I don't understand what goes into this process. Yeah, so it's just uh, iron brew with whiskey mixed together. You down it, and then if you swear profusely as like it, a, as a, a reflex, <laughs> yep, still Scottish. Yeah. See, I assumed it was it was 
like Scottish flag footy pajamas. And then occasionally Graham wakes up, takes off the covers and realizes he's wearing a union jacket. It's very, it's a very <laughs> off-putting moment for him. And he has to kind of go and make a change that's, real that's, quick. That's the nightmare before I, I wake up and then I pull back the covers. Oh, still a saltire. Okay. Uh, speaking speaking of nightmares, Joe Lowry spent a large chunk of his day yesterday in uh, Italian customs getting oh, through. Yeah, yeah. And I do like to imagine <laughs> that there was the like smooth and easy five minute customs line. And they were like, wait, 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 you're familiar, uh, affiliated with Ryan Bailey? No, oh, no, no, no. You've got to go through the five hour long one. one. Yeah, yeah. You could you are now safely in Rome. It was, <laughs> I don't even know where you were leading me. I'm just going to take this and run. Guys, uh, Rome. So today's the first day. I'm in, I'm in Rome with, with family. It's been lovely. We saw some sites. We walked around the city, had a great time. All that was good. Uh, but the airport experience did give me some real sympathy for what Ryan has experienced. So Graham, I know you said I was coming from London to Rome. You messaged in the Slack after I was complaining about this and said basically, Hey, buddy, if you're coming from London, guess whose fault that is? Like it's not Rome's fault. But the reality is we got through the line, which I swear was moving like person by person, single file with one person checking and stamping passports. And finally, we get through and and things start to move a little bit faster when we're already at the front, of course. It's because they just opened up like a set of automatic machines. I don't understand what was taking so long. Like, could we not have done? It was difficult, guys. (laughs) It was a difficult moment. Um, Ryan, I have a little bit more sympathy for you today than I did yesterday. It's, it's TSS law that there must be at least one co-host in Italy at any given time to complain about the, the time it takes to do simple admin tasks. Yeah, as long as you're not running uh, around Rome, Joe, looking for a Starbucks, I think I, yeah. I think you're good. One one Ryan Bailey in Italy is enough. Or I envisage that after leaving the the airport and complaining about that task, you like you looked in the mirror, and I don't know if anyone has seen this bit in Harry Potter when they they morph into like other people and then the face starts to come back into their face. You looked in the mirror at yourself, and there was like bits of Ryan Bailey starting to appear in your face. Is that a Lululemon cap that's on my head? <laughs> that's how that went. That's terrifying. <laughs> I do I do appreciate that I'm sh- I, I get the sense that Joe is more of a like goes and has a, a shot of espresso versus seeks out a, a Starbucks somewhere so yeah. Joe I feel like is going to enjoy Rome come on uh, it's pumpkin spice latte season exactly it's, it's hashtag PSL season Taylor get with it no I am <laughs> first of all I am I am very grateful to be able to, to be on half vacation half work whatever all that is great and, and I've had much more fun than I've had mm. difficulty so far um, but yes if you see me in a Starbucks when I'm in Europe please rescue me because Ryan really has taken over my body. When is it my turn in the TSS foreign exchange program? Yeah, right. (laughs) I want to go to Richmond, Virginia. Come on over, buddy. Come on over. Well, here is, this does sort of lead me to my next idea that I had. Uh, I do think the next time the four of us are together for an extended amount of time, we should go the always sunny route and have like Mac day or D day. It should be like Graham day, Joe day, Ryan day and Taylor day. And we just have to do whatever Graham would do on that day. So I guess with Ryan, it would be like a, a 10 mile run and then just a series of fast mm. food restaurants, I, I think is probably what would go down there. But the sad part is Ryan Day one. sounds really, really good. The 10 miles is a bit far, but make it like three. And I am sold on Ryan Day. I'm honestly not sure about Graham Day in terms of like how mm. I'm going to feel. Taylor Day, we're going to be eating quite well. And I don't really know what Joe Day looks like, but I, I think I'm into this idea. Yeah, Graham Day, first step, wake up, do the Scottish personality test. Yep. Shot of Iron Brew and whiskey <laughs> down, the, down, down the hatch. Uh, we will get to the actual list of questions. We were to be joined and hosted by Ryan Bailey, but uh, not to be out-cued. Uh, Joe had his cue experience and Ryan said, no, 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 no. <laughs> Hold my... Uh, pumpkin spice latte i'm gonna outcue you he is i believe trying to get his driver's license he is waiting to do the test at the dmv in north carolina 
I cannot wait to hear how (laughs) well or potentially poorly that went for him. Yeah. See, the thing is, I presumed he was he was still refu- refusing to leave his uh, his Chili's booth. Yep. He's, he's been reworking his butt mark in the cushion in his booth for the last few days, and he's That's he's not image. about to give up that easily. <laughs> <laughs> On that note, I think it's time probably to answer s- some questions. Uh, but the note of Graham this. saying butt mark is that is <laughs> yes, exactly. the note for you. <laughs> That was that was the one that did it. Yes. Okay. <laughs> From uh, Mr. Fantastic himself, uh, Reed Richards. Why are wins counted as three points and not two points in league tables across Europe? If a loss results in zero points, a tie results in one point. Shouldn't the next logical step be that a win results in two points? Graham, should it be two points? Should it be three? Why is it three? Okay, so history lesson here. I'm not sure if Mr. Reed Richards was aware of this, but um, three points for a win is actually a relatively recent thing in soccer. Um, obviously, it's standard across the board now, but as recently as the, the 90s, most leagues and competitions only awarded two points for a win. So if you look at the 1990 World Cup, look at how Italy won all three of their group games, look at the points that they got for those wins, they got six points for three wins rather than the nine that you would get now. Um, this was changed for the 94 World Cup and by that time it was uh, it was implemented across the sport amazingly the Champions League didn't use three points for a win until 1995 which seems exceptionally late for that uh, for that competition it was introduced quite a a bit earlier in England where they used three points for a win um, from 1981 onwards Uh, basically the reasoning was that by awarding more points for a win, you would incentivize teams to play attacking football, to go for it more often. Um, but the additional context is that in the, in the 80s in England, uh, where this was first introduced, football was in trouble at that time. It wasn't the Premier League age. Crowds were dwindling. Interest in the sport in general was 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 on the wane. Violence was an issue. So there was a number of ideas put forward to make the, the, the sport more appealing. This was one of them. The other reason was that FIFA, and I, I didn't know this until I, I did my research for this question, the other reason was that FIFA was apparently concerned with how American audiences would take to draws at the 1994 <laughs> World Cup. So I mentioned that difference that happened between 90 and 94. So they brought in three points for a win in an attempt to to limit the number of draws. I have never known, to answer your question that, that you asked me there, Taylor, should it be two points for a win? I have never known any different than three points for a win. And I'm okay with it. It's yep. not something that I have ever considered, really. So I say we keep it. Yep, that's about where I am. Joe, you feeling any differently or anything else to add? No, not not at all in terms of feeling differently. I think having a win as a more incentivized option really has benefited the sport. Even you think about it just conceptually, having a win count for three times as much as the value of a tie. Yes, the progression of zero points for a loss, one for a draw, two for a win makes sense. And, and that's kind of like a satisfying pr- progression. I think having three points for that win genuinely it was a, a stroke of genius from the rule makers to try to encourage the sport to open up. Like you go through and read some quotes from English managers around the late 70s and early 80s. And it's like you can imagine how dire the game was from the, the tone of the quotes and from the words talking about if you want to be entertained, go to the theater. Right. Like we're not here to entertain you. Well, yeah, kind of you are right. That's not your primary job, but the sport should facilitate this idea that you are entertaining the people that are watching it. It's not your job as a manager explicitly to set up in a style that leaves you vulnerable when maybe it makes more sense for you to go for the draw and collect those points when really going for a win isn't that much more valuable. Bumping that up to three points instead of two, I think was a really, really smart decision. And I mean, if, if we're going to do anything, I hope that we continue to incentivize open soccer, probably not by making a win four points rather than three, but 
I don't think we need to go back to where we've been. Should we go uh, like take a little page out of hockey's book? And should we do uh, at the end of regulation, if it's a draw, we go straight to a shootout. And if you win the shootout, you get two points. Is that is that a way to do it? That happens in League's Cup, right? That's what I was going to say, Graham. Absolutely. Like they're, they're trying to find ways to make things a little spicier. I don't know if that one's going to stick or not. But yeah, people are, are thinking about this still in, in soccer is still. You guys talked about it. That would have been last week in the Take It or Leave It episode about heading and, and maybe rule changes and how that would affect the sport in general other than just banning heading and that one individual action. Yep, there are still rules that are being toyed with and things that could be changed, even if three points for a win is probably one that's going to stick around for a long time. Yeah, one thing that was interesting doing my research on this was looking at whether three points for a win has actually had the desired effect and whether it has incentivized uh, more attacking play. There was a really good piece from the in The Guardian from a few years ago. It cited a study that was done in Spain. It looked at Copa del Rey matches. I'm not going to read everything out because it is very, very granular, granular and I'd imagine a little bit boring to listen to. But essentially, the, the, the headline was that they found, and they did have parameters that used stats and numbers for this, but they found that it had incentivized attacking play by up to 10%. I know that sounds very reductive, but I swear there is working behind that. Um, I found one study that, that showed that if you were to apply three points for a win to every English top flight season, season going back to the Second World War, uh, World War you'd get the same champions in, in that division. So it hasn't really changed the outcome in that regard. In the five seasons before the switch to three points, there was an average of um, 133.0 draws per season in what was the, the first division at that time in England. And then in the five seasons afterwards, there was an average of 113.4. Um, there were 100 draws in the Premier League last season. If you extrapolate that out to take account of the reduction in the number of top flight teams from 22 to 20, you get a figure of 121.6. So the comparison there is 133 to 121.6. So it has had a bit of an impact, but but not a, not a huge one. It's, 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 it's been quite subtle, I guess. Forgive me, what did the 121 and 133 signify? So 133 was the uh, the average number of draws in the five seasons before the switch to oh, okay. um, to, to, to three points for a win. And 121.6 was the Premier League last season, the number of draws. And that is statistically significant, I'm assuming. So Joe, how do those numbers work for you? I'm assuming that the numbers made you perk up a little bit, whereas yeah. for me, my brain started to hurt. No, Graham, I, <laughs> apologies for that. Um, Graham, I, I think those are helpful numbers to toss in here. They're not mind-blowing draws were cut in half or anything along those lines, right? But that's going to be very, very difficult to do for as long as you give draws some value, right? As long as you make draws still a successful outcome that gets you closer towards the top of the table, like you're still going to have draws in this sport in addition to soccer's nature, right? Like soccer by nature is a very low-scoring game. It is really hard to weave your way through 10 outfield players and one dude that gets to use his hands or one lady that gets to use her hands in the goal and score. Like, that's just very difficult to do. It's harder to do that than it is to score in any other major American sport, certainly. So if you can cut in, cut draws, the thing that is very likely to happen in a sport of soccer, down by that much, yeah, it's not a mind-blowing decrease, but it is, I think, a very notable one for that sample size. All right. Well, well answered, gentlemen. Uh, Joe, we'll come to you first for the next one uh, from Guy Yedwab. Clubs often pay more for potential players than for players who are mid-career and proven. Does that pay off? Kind of a big question. Joe, where do you want to take us? Yeah, so I'll, I'll give a general answer first and say it can pay off, right? The idea of going for potential 
rather than proven ability can absolutely pay off. There are lots of different examples you can think of. I think MLS is actually not just the league that I tend to go to for examples first because it's the one that I know the best, but I also think it is a really good example of teams that go for potential because you think about Real Madrid and who they end up buying or Manchester City and who they end up buying. Sure, they buy young players. Think about Jude Bellingham for Real Madrid and Erling Holland for Manchester City, but they're not unproven, right? Like we know how good Jude Bellingham is. He's had time in the Bundesliga to tell us that we know how good Erling Holland is. He's had time in the Bundesliga and the Austrian Bundesliga, but especially like the top teams in the world, the, the big two in Spain, the top of the English Premier League, the top of the Bundesliga in Bayern Munich and PSG, like those teams can pick young but proven players. There may be 50 of them in the world at an elite level at any given time, and they're all playing for those teams. MLS teams have to go and actually maybe throw a few extra darts at the board, right? So potential can pay off, but the more data you get on a player before you sign them, the better off you're going to be in terms of that player actually hitting, right? Now, data doesn't just mean numbers, by the way. Film, like time that they spent not getting into trouble, feels more pertinent now seemingly than ever before with stuff going on with Manchester United. You're going to be better off by waiting a little bit and getting more data, more information about a player than just by rushing into something. And and there's a team that I always think of outside of MLS that comes to mind first when you think about buying more proven players that are still in their prime, and it's Liverpool, right? They're the classic example of a team not only going for potential, but really looking for those early prime players that are going to be really good without totally breaking the bank, right? You know, they're not buying the Erling Holland of five years ago. They're not buying the Jude Bellingham of five years ago. They're buying Mo Salah, who had been at a high level before in multiple leagues, but but getting him at 25 was huge for them. Sadio Mane at 24, Roberto Firmino at 23, Van Dijk at 26, right? Even a little bit later, maybe the next generation for them was Luis Diaz signing him at 24, right, from Portugal. Not every club can spend quite like Liverpool, but they've had a lot of success going for more proven players rather than potential. And, and I guess to sort of loop back around one more time to Major League Soccer, you know, there are leagues outside of the Premier League that can't afford to go and, and find proven players all the time. They do have to speculate a little bit. They do have to guess a little bit. But even within Major League Soccer, we're seeing like some striation. We're seeing some clubs say, no, we are going to go find the proven guys, or at least we're going to go find more proven guys than unproven. And we're not just going to make the bet on talent and on potential. And Atlanta United, I think, is a club that has made that switch to show that striation better and and more clearly than probably anybody else. Garth Lagerwey, in coming to Atlanta, has talked about publicly multiple times about about how he's shifting their transfer ethos away from the Thiago Almada, P.T. Martinez, Ezekiel Barco type of signings. The $15 million South American playmakers were hoping this guy is going to hit, but we don't know for sure because they've never done it at the highest of high levels. You want to shift from that to Yakimakis, right? To, to Giorgio's Yakimakis, the players that have been in multiple leagues and had real success. In Yakimakis' case, it's it's uh, the Netherlands, I believe, and Scotland. Like he scored a bunch of goals in those two leagues. Maybe he's not a player that if you're a Liverpool, you're going to go out and sign. But Garth Lagerwey feels like he has a recipe to go out there and find proven talent that then you couple with some of the more unproven players. So that's a long-winded way of saying, yes, potential can pay off, like Thiago Almada for Atlanta United is really good and is going to make them a lot of money Probably going to be the most expensive player to ever leave Major League Soccer. But Ezekiel Barco and Pitu Martinez are kind of standing up on the other side just for one club that says, yeah, swinging for the fences all the time with potential just doesn't always pay off. That makes sense. Graham, a question for you then. If if we break the question apart for a moment, is Guy saying clubs pay more for young players with potential than they do for players who are mid-career? Yeah, I think so. 
Do I mean, you... that is that 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 is. A, are you going to ask me whether I agree with that? Or? Yeah. I think, yeah, I think so. I mean, broadly speaking, obviously, there's going to be some examples that that don't fit that um, those parameters. But I think it's a, a principle that you see in business as well. An example being a couple of years ago, Tesla's market cap before their car started uh, self-driving into pedestrians that sat at <laughs> six hundred and thirty-five billion, where Ford's was just at forty-eight billion, and they were producing eight times more cars than Tesla. So I, I, I use that I use that number quite often. I think if you if you found my Guardian article. That uh, has been cited in, I think, at least two articles because it shows the promise of something is often more valuable than, than the actual reality of something. And, and the money that owners pay for MLS franchises is another good example of this, where MLS clubs are often worth way more than Premier League clubs, even though Premier League clubs are, you know, in the biggest league in, in, in the world. So, I uh, yeah, I think I do generally agree with the premise that potential costs more than than uh, fully fledged players. I mean, Cal- Callum Hudson Adoy. Signed for Nottingham Forest in this window for three million pounds when Chelsea are paying what was it, 115 million pounds for Moises Caicedo. That's a bit of a silly example, but still the point stands. I suppose it does. I suppose it stands. It's just yeah. Anytime you're using Chelsea as your example, things get a little bit murky. <laughs> True. I think it's just an interesting question to me. I don't disagree with it either, but I think it's funny that for so long it was the inverse that you were paying for. 25 year old in their prime like because i think for the longest time 27 to 28 was considered like the prime year of of, like when you've developed as a player but you're still physically at your peak and so getting a 25 year old was the ideal time to sign somebody so they tended to cost more and it felt like then clubs looked to younger players for value where you could bring in the 19 year old who you're then going to sell when they're 25 for that crazy amount of money but i think as that became more of a successful model more clubs started to do that. And so it just is an interesting shift now that those 25-year-olds are still going to cost you a pretty penny if they are in those ideal positions. But I think those 19-year-olds are also inclined to cost you a ton of money. And so it just becomes... I don't think it's like necessarily a shift. It's just like things are just more expensive across the board, it seems. Yeah. Yeah, things are more expensive across the board. I also would be curious to see if there is evidence of a shift. Like, I don't have the transfer data in front of me, but I would imagine that that prime age of player has shifted a little earlier. Taylor, you, you got, oh, you got sure. there, right? And, sure. and so I would imagine, you know, we're seeing more minutes from younger players at the highest levels. We're seeing more money be splashed around relative to just the, the huge sums that are being tossed around now. But maybe we're seeing more money spent on the average 20-year-old or at least the average 20-year-old moving to or from a big five league than you did a decade ago or two decades ago. I don't know if that's true, but I think there's an important distinction here. And guys, question... I tried to get at it, right? Not every young player is a potential signing, right? And I guess what I mean by that is not every young player is a a play that they're going to blossom into something more than they are, right? In a sense, they are because you anticipate that as they hit their prime, they're going to get better. But there's no way you look at Man City's signing of Erling Holland and think that's a speculative choice other than maybe minor tactical stuff, right? Jude Bellingham, the two players that keep coming back to, those players, you're not signing them and hoping for the best. You're signing them and knowing, that they're going to be the best. So there is some, uh, there is some like real thought, and I guess some again striation that has to go into how you think about these tiers of players as well. Yeah, I think some of the big clubs have have also cut out the the middleman in terms of the the, the flow mm-hmm. of traffic that used yeah. to exist in transfers. The best example of this is Real Madrid. You look at their front line. Two of their front line is Vinicius and and Rodrigo, both of whom were were bought for big money as teenagers straight from Brazil. 
Real Madrid already have the next uh, Brazilian teenager lined up. He's called Endrick. They're signing him for, for 60 million euros next summer when he turns 18 years old, I think. He's going to come over to, to Real Madrid. And obviously there are other parts of their transfer strategy. They sign Antonio Rudiger from Chelsea. They sign Jude Bellingham this year. So they're, they're not purely doing that. But I also look at Manchester United paying 70 million euros for Rasmus Hoyland who has pure potential at this point. I don't think anyone really knows whether he's going to be a world-class centre-forward. Would Manchester United have done that in the Ferguson years? And it's not and it's not purely because Manchester United aren't as good a team anymore. I think that is part of it. But look at Manchester City going and getting Julian Alvarez from Argentina. There's another example of the middleman almost being cut out with, with the big club skipping an entire step in that player's development. So I think we are seeing that more and more in, in with some of the big clubs. It's interesting, Graham, because you did used to have those pipelines, usually by nationality. Like I think Porto had a lot of connections to Brazil, obviously. So you'd get Porto as sort of the landing spot for a lot of Brazilians coming over. I feel like we previously talked about PSV being a spot where a lot of Mexican players, like there was, there seemed to be a strong connection there. So you'd get players into Europe and then you'd have Real Madrid look at them. And I totally agree with you that to your... Your point, it seems like they've just been like, you know what? We don't need to do that. Let's just send some scouts to Brazil and do some signing. And that seems to be working out for them pretty well. My final question on this one, then, could you and Joe, you talked a little bit about this with Liverpool, but I'm wondering if there's like I'm sure there is a better example of this out there. But is there a model of a club goes the other direction and it's just like, you know, we're only signing signing 29 year olds or older and we're going to buy them <laughs> at like a discount when Chelsea don't want them anymore. We'll get them for three million, but we'll put them into a team and it will be a maybe it's the same philosophy every season. Maybe you're changing it, but I, I, I just wonder if you could have it would be a slower team probably. But if you had a team of like 31 year olds, is there a way that you could compete because you're signing people who maybe other clubs aren't going to splash that cash on? That's that's fascinating, Taylor. I've genuinely never thought of that. So I'm pulling up the oldest clubs in the Premier League based off of average age, I think, of minutes played so far. Fulham is the oldest at 28. So maybe they're the closest. I think that's just Tim Ream in the back line is all, is all that is. It's just Grandpa Tim uh, inflating their average a bit. I, I don't. I genuinely don't think anybody's doing that exactly in the way that you described it, but... Teams looking for veteran players, Fulham is, is is a decent example in some ways because they've relied on Tim Ream. Some of the transfer business they did this past summer, going and looking for players that are slightly older that didn't have a ton of interest. I think there are clubs that look for undervalued assets, but I don't know that there are clubs that would look for them all in that upper age bracket. Yeah. Because I feel like you're just looking for a lot of work for your physio at that point. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I'm, I'm aware I'm about to contradict myself because I just cited the Rasmund Hoyland example, but... Manchester United kind of have done that the last few years with Varane and Casemiro and I just googled Andre Onana's age he's 27 years old which is what I thought he was he was around so I mean obviously it's not it's not a pure strategy from them because I'm not sure anything is a pure strategy from them at this point but yeah they've signed a few established stars recently they have it is Especially interesting given that I believe Ferguson instituted the no one over the age of 26 rule when he was looking at signings. So they seem to have moved away from that one. Yeah, until he got to his final season, he was like, I'll have Van Persie, please. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> oh, I'm on the way out and I need someone to score goals. It's fine. Uh, Bayern Munich, I believe, from this past weekend had an average age of 28.5. So maybe they have also gone a little bit more veteran, though that might have to do with certain personnel in that team playing there forever uh but that was a great question thank you guy we're going to take a quick break and then we're going to come back with some more listener questions very shortly looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone 
Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. In sports, it's all about having the right teammate. That might mean Jude Bellingham and Vinicius Jr. combining to score goals. It might be Carlo Ancelotti's eyebrows. We all know they are the best of teammates. And maybe uh, Pep Guardiola and screaming. Those are some ideal teammates that come to mind. But when it comes to the perfect teammate to grow your business, that would be Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business from the just launched your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the we have a giant stadium club stage and we need to sell some merch. Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you are selling Rakinho gear here in the United States or selling inflatable Scotland-branded unicorns outside of their games at the Euros this summer, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. And it helps you turn browsers into buyers with the Internet's best converting checkout up to 36% better compared to other leading e-commerce platforms. And with Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star, you can sell more with less effort. That is a thing uh, my brother and sister-in-law have talked about when it comes to using Shopify and how Shopify can help them find new clientele, reach new people, and then get them checked out uh, much faster, both in their brick-and-mortar and online. They just opened a second brick-and-mortar and continue to use Shopify to do so. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the United States, and its extensive help resources are there to help support your success every step of the way, because businesses that grow grow with shopify sign up for a one dollar per month trial period at shopify.com slash tss that's all lowercase go to shopify.com slash lowercase tss now to gain your business no matter what stage you're in shopify.com slash tss welcome back to the total soccer show more listener questions coming at you graham coming to you for this one while we let joe just like get warmed up in the bullpen uh, from John <laughs> Offstetler, uh, perhaps underrated in Miami's transformation is what Tata Martino, a proven MLS winner, has done. So what exactly has he done, Graham? OK, so I think it's been really good to see Tata Martino re- revitalized. And, and I agree with John. It has be, kind of flown under the radar a little bit, understandably, given who is now playing for Inter Miami. That's kind of the thing that is... Just, uh, just, just a few, yeah. They, few, okay. they signed uh, Diego Gomez to play in central midfield. I, I oh, that's presume the one, that's, that's one you're talking one. about, yes. right? Okay. Um, yeah, I generally enjoy watching Tata's teams play. Um, didn't watch, uh, enjoy watching that Mexico team at all. So I, d- I don't really know what happened there. But Inter Miami has been a good fit for him so far. In terms of a couple things that he has done to change Inter Miami, besides just you know fielding Messi and Alba and Busquets, I think he's made good use of the left wing. So obviously having someone like Jordi Alba in that position helps. But it's become a real feature of Inter Miami's play funneling attacks down the left and then that opens up space in the middle for a Messi or a Busquets to drop into I think that has worked really well for Inter Miami Martino's also squeezed his wingers really narrow with Messi usually usually being one of those wingers and that essentially allows those players to get in between the lines more often and that then also links into what I'm saying about the the left side and Jordi Albert frees up the flanks for the fullbacks to push up so in phases of attack you'll have often have a front uh, five or a front four with two in, be- in behind. If it starts off as more of a four-four-two, that that is a shape that you will see. You also have uh, Sergio Busquets creating a, a triangle with the centre backs to build out from the back, and he'll often drop in between the centre backs as well, which is obviously that's something that we have seen all the way through his career, so not too surprising. And when Busquets does that, 
I was watching a bit of the the tape this morning. I have watched the uh, Inter Miami play a number of matches with Messi, but I was I was pausing bits to look at shape and so on. When Busquets does that, you you often get a box midfield with the two wingers central and then the two box to box midfielders to create that that square. So under Neville, I went back and looked at the the numbers. Inter Miami seemed to be very direct. They were re- very reliant on long balls from the goalkeeper. Goalkeeper, they didn't progress the ball through through the lines very well. And now, if you look at each phase of that team, from the goalkeeper to the defence, through into the midfield and then into attack, I think Martino has set them up much much better to progress the ball and and be more effective in those build out phases. All right, I think that's pretty much asked and answered, so we can just keep it moving. I guess, Joe, Joe, why don't you add whatever thoughts you might have, I suppose. Uh, you guys couldn't hear the ball flacking into the glove in the bullpen, which is just a great sound, <laughs> by the way. Uh, that's all that was happening over here in my little room in, in Italy. Joe, uh, do you need entrance music? Is, is should I Should possible. we be thinking about... I don't, okay. I didn't know that was on the table, to be honest. I think I think it should be. I mean, closers get their own music. So, Joe, have a think about what your closer music should be, but uh, first answer this question. <laughs> okay, so This is all flying well over Graham's head, I'm Could guessing. It be hard to do both at the same time i'll be honest um but i'll give it a shot so graham i think you you nailed so much of that like the tactical structure that you described yep that's that's about it right the fullbacks are are getting wide and high sometimes they're wingbacks and a dedicated back three it's been a lot of four three three but busquets drops at times and you get the box midfield and yeah you, you checked all the boxes there the thing with martino that really stands out to me and i know this is rich coming from the guy that always nerds out about tactics it's it's much less what he's done tactically Right. It's so it's so like simple, I guess, and sort of straightforward. And Graham, I don't know if you would agree with that, but all the things that you described and they're in my notes, they're they're just kind of the obvious thing to do. Right. Like, where are you going to put Messi inside in the right half space or drifting centrally? Right. What are you going to do with Busquets? You're going to play him as a six and he's going to drop between the center back sometimes to get on the ball. He's going to dictate and you're going to put hard workers around him. What are you going to do with Jordi Alba? You're going to put him on the left side. He'll have some flexibility to tuck in, but he's going to get high and wide to give you a little bit of playmaking from wide areas, which you just don't really have in this squad. So much of it just makes sense. And in Tato Fertino, I give him credit because there are a lot of moving pieces and parts, but I, I don't think he's done anything mind-blowing on the tactical side. I, there's been, honestly, a bit more flexibility than I thought there would be in terms of back three shapes. We've seen a 3-4-3. We've seen a 3-5-2. And that base 4-3-3 in possession that oftentimes goes back to a 4-4-2 block out of possession. We've seen a lot of that stuff, but it kind of just makes sense. Like, lots of decisions needed to be made, but they weren't these mind-blowing, like, decisions that were probably keeping Tata Martino up at night. The stuff that I think was maybe keeping Tata Martino up at night, and maybe still is, is what he's had to do as a manager. Like, with the people inside the locker room, the reason why Tata was a good choice for Inter-Miami MLS experience, yes, but he's coached Messi before. And the amount of gettable coaches that have coached Messi before, you can count them on, on one hand, right? You, you can count gettable ones probably on one finger. And that finger's name in this weird analogy is, is Tata Martino, right? You just didn't have a lot of choices. So you go out there and get Tata Martino. There is a respect there. There's a connection there. They can work together to figure out, okay, when are you going to rest? And clearly they had done that, right? Tata Martino came out and said, hey, Messi's going to miss three games. And I guess sort of as a minimum. Thinking about international duty, when really because of international duty, he was only going to miss one in this past September window. And then we come in and he doesn't play against Atlanta. And oh, that's probably pre-planned, right? He's at two, even though there's a little bit of a knock there, right? But setting that aside, they have a relationship, they have a rapport, they can figure it out together in this weird balance of Leagues Cup, Open Cup, where they're playing for a trophy coming up soon, and MLS as they're trying to push for the playoffs. They can prioritize and work together to build a minutes plan that makes sense. I think that is huge. And then let's not forget, 
this isn't just about Messi. Like Inter Miami had an unprecedented transfer window, yes, because they signed Messi, and we wouldn't be talking about them nearly this much if they hadn't, but they also signed Sergio Busquets and Jordi Alba, two genuine global superstars, and they also signed three young players from South America and Thomas Aviles, Facundo Farias, and, and Diego Gomez. And they also had Ben Kramaski and David Ruiz and these academy kids that are in their first season of professional soccer. And Tato Martino is juggling all of those things. Messi as the superstar and the leader of this team. And then old leadership and new leadership and young players and veterans and superstars and nobodies. He's balancing all of that. So yes, the tactical stuff is very real. But to me, the stuff that stands out most about what Tato Martino has done is that he's had to manage a team that has absolutely no precedent in Major League Soccer and really in the history of this sport around the world. And so far, he's done a darn good job. It really is wild, Joe, when you put it that way, to think that Inter Miami were able to find like maybe the perfect manager. Like when you're talking about a person who managed Messi at Barcelona, but also managed him in Argentina. But then by all accounts, they still like each other. And there are Barca managers that you could have gone for that Messi probably wouldn't have been stoked to play for again. Same thing with former Argentina managers. So to get a person who has that relationship with Messi and Busquets and Alba, but then also has a positive relationship. And then on top of that has also already won MLS cup. That is a very, yeah. very Joseph specific. Martinez is already there as well. It's like another player that you would think, Oh, maybe he will get the best out of him. Yeah. It's perfect fit. It really is. And, and so what I agree with everything both of you have said, um, it reminds me of the, the Cruyff quote of uh, playing football is very simple, but playing simple football is the hardest thing there is. And I do think there are managers who would have come in and maybe thought we're going to put Messi as a, as a number 10 and we'll build the team around him. Or we're going to put Messi as the striker and he'll score all the goals. And I could see a less confident or less experienced manager thinking, I've got to build this whole team around him and make him the central figure, literally the central figure, and then we'll build the team out from there. And so to have somebody who can come in and and put him where he wants to be, but also know where he wants to be and know the positions and areas of the pitch he likes to operate in, and then how do you get him into those? But how do you sort of have players who are then covering and making sure that you're not wide open if you lose the ball it does feel like the perfect appointment both because of his coaching pedigree and experience martino but then also his ability to know those players know how to get the best out of them know how to like cover the the weaknesses that they might present and then still coach the rest of the team it's just it's a crazy good appointment that probably does fly under the radar a little bit i guess when you look at the other names that are there yeah, there's a lot. There are a lot of moving pieces and parts. And and Tata Martino is probably not the most important one. That would be Messi, and then probably Busquets. And and you could run through a few players that you would still prefer to have than just yeah, adding Tata yeah, Martino yeah. to mm-hmm. that Inter Miami team. But like, yeah, it's it's huge, and it it fell perfectly into. I mean, all every single thing this this winter or summer. I, yeah, summer. It was summer. Every single thing in the summer for Jorge Mas and Inter Miami fell into place just right, partially because they had positioned themselves to catch it as it was falling into place. But, I mean, also it just kind of fell into their laps. And, and as someone who spends a lot of time watching this league and thinking about it, it has enriched my life. And I'm grateful to the Masas and to Tata Martino because of that. I'm glad that Joe ended this by praising the Miami ownership. Well done, Joe. I'm sure the check is in the mail. Next question comes from Matt Yu. Uh, Joe, we'll come to you for this one first. Uh, What national teams would get substantially better or worse if managers had to be from the nation they are managing? An interesting question, I'm going to guess, uh, born of the take it or leave it uh, conversation we had about should national teams have to be managed by somebody from that country or somebody eligible to represent that country? And and I think it's worth clarifying up front, Joe, maybe this is part of your research, that 
I don't really know how much this would actually change things because it does feel like most of the bigger nations, historically more successful nations, tend to already do this. I think England have only had two foreign managers. They're much more recent. Spain, I believe, have only had Spanish managers. The same for Italy, same for Germany. France, I think, has had one, and that was in 1975. Brazil, twice, most recently in 1965. And Argentina has always pretty much always been managed by an, uh, an Argentine manager. So it's it seems to be a thing that a lot of nations already sort of unofficially do. Yes, there aren't a ton of examples for the big, big, big leagues of sort of the, the big, big, big countries, excuse me, of of nations actually going out and finding other nationalities to coach them. What I will say is I, I think pretty much every national team would get worse if you limited the pool, right? I'm not saying that there aren't worlds and maybe we're in one where national teams play better with someone from their country. Like maybe England, that's an important thing for England and having Gareth Southgate does help them get that extra 1% out from the bottom or for the U.S. to have somebody in, in really tap into the grit in, in maybe American soccer's identity, if that even exists anymore. Like maybe that helps and maybe that is worth it. But if I'm any country, I'd rather have access to as many candidates for a job as possible and find the best qualified candidate if, if, if everybody's on a level playing field. So I think in general, it makes everybody worse. The, the one thing, the one team that I really think it makes worse, and this one came to mind for me first, is I think if the U.S. women's national team can only hire an American coach, they're going to get worse. Because we've talked a decent amount, and it's quieted down a little bit post-World Cup. We've got some U.S. women's national team friendlies coming up this week, and, and that'll be fun. But there's no coach right now, and we talked about who the coach should be. And Taylor's all aboard the Casey Stoney Blazer for Life train over there, and that's great. I don't really have a train. Graham, I don't think, has a train. Ryan doesn't really care enough to have a train, which Cowards. is fair enough. Like, I think if the U.S. has to hire an American coach... They're probably looking at Laura Harvey, who I, I just don't think is quite done enough at club level for you to feel great about it. And so if you're U.S. soccer, and I'm fairly confident, U.S. soccer is looking all around the world, not just in the United States, to find the perfect candidate, the best qualified candidate, regardless of their nationality, to lead the team. I think that is the perfect example of a team that will be hamstrung by not having access to a broader list of candidates, which is a larger and scarier discussion about well, why isn't the U.S. developing better soccer coaches? But that's not what Matt asked, so that's not what I'm going to get to. I'm now thinking of managers as trains. That's all <laughs> my mind has gone to now, Joe, when you asked what my, what my train was. My train is the love train. Okay. Joe, I think, I, I think the, I the U.S. women is a great answer. Graham, I'm glad you've gone love train route. Um, <laughs> because I didn't really – I thought of this as sort of like a monolith. Like it's the men's and women's program on both sides. And if you do separate them – I feel like it definitely hurts the women's game a lot more because I think there's less arrogance. I think there's less like, this is how we do it. This is how we've always done it. This is how it has to be on the women's side. And so I think you can get more experimentation. You can have England having a Dutch manager and bringing sort of Dutch values, Dutch ideals, Dutch tactics or Dutch like application of tactics to the English team and it makes them better. And so I, th I think certainly on the women's side, I think we've seen more of that. Morocco, another example, they have a French manager uh, and there's obviously a lot of cultural overlap there. But at the same time, it's still a manager that if we put these rules in place, they wouldn't have been able to get. And so I think having managers who can have a, have an impact or have a difference or just provide a little bit of more flexibility than nations might be used to. I think that's a really interesting idea. So I think that is one. I think on the men's side, the Mexico national team gets worse, mostly just because you're picking from a very select pool. And that pool is going to be constantly ripped apart because there are 
national team allegiances, obviously, but then there are club allegiances. And I think clubs will want their manager to stay with the club and not be moved up. But then as soon as that manager goes, rival fans are going to be out for blood immediately. And I think there's going to be so much criticism of every manager that it will be an even shorter turnaround time. I think there's so much more criticism once you're just going domestic on the Mexican side. So I could see that being an issue. I have two more other nations that I think might get a little bit worse. Uh, Graham, where were you on this one? Yeah, I think just generally smaller nations with less of a soccer culture or, or just generally less less resources, less money to to spend on things like infrastructure, I think would be worse for this change. Um, so would South Korea have reached the semifinals of the 2002 World Cup without... Nope. Goose heading. I think that's probably unlikely. Would Zambia have won AFCON in 2013 without without Herve Renard? I can't imagine that team without those uh, crisp white shirts. Um, so possibly not. So yeah, basically any country with a small pool of coaches to choose from, I think, would surely get worse. Or 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 England maybe would get worse. Um, because here's my argument for England. Certainly in the women's side, it's an easy argument. Suna Wiegmann is the the best. Um, women's coach in, in, in the sport uh, certainly an international game but then I, I, I would also counter argue that if Serena Wiegmann isn't the England manager then maybe Emma Hayes is and I don't know how much of a drop off that is but on the men's side who would have coached England in the 2000s if they hadn't been able to get Sven and Fabio Capello and I know people <laughs> criticise Sven and Fabio Capello but have you seen the English managers from around that time that would have been in charge of the England team Alan Kerbishley shakes his head at you angrily <laughs> while doing a dance I mean, I wish Alan Kerbishley had been the England manager for the 2006 and 2010 World Cups, but I can't quite... Uh, I but that's you, the Scottish quite, fan, I, I saying that, right? That. <laughs> yeah. That's not because you think he would have done well. It's because you think it would have been even worse than it was. Yeah. Uh, one of my favourite <laughs> things about Twitter, I'm not sure if this is if, if this is still going, is there used to be a bot that uh, that was, is, is Alan Kerbishley in a management job yet? And that just every day tweeted out, no, no, no. no. It, yeah. Man, you're not wrong. There was that period when it was like, a constant debate of who is the best English manager. And it was like Kirbishly, Allardyce, maybe Tony Pulis was in there. It was, it was not great. I, I don't think not that it's like fully that much better, but, uh, that, that, that were some bleak times. Uh, so I, I think if nothing else, then you have those international managers. So then you go back to Southgate, yeah. a person who appreciates the team or understands the culture. And maybe that makes a difference. So here are the English managers from the 2006-2007 Premier League season. So obviously I'm lining that up with the Sven, Sven's last World Cup in 2006. The English managers are Sammy Lee, oh. <laughs> what a good start here, oh. Alan Pardew, which is probably as good as it gets really, Stuart Pearce, Gareth Southgate... <laughs> Southgate's in here. (laughs) I didn't even realise Southgate was going to be in this list. Nigel Pearson, Harry Redknapp. It would have been Harry Redknapp, I'd imagine, who would have got the job. Steve Koppel, Neil Warnock, A.D. Boothroyd, Alan Kerbishley, or Paul Jill. That was the choice. It would, Man, I remember when it was going to be Redknapp and how horribly that would have gone. (laughs) Like It would have been no tactics, just picking players based on vibe and name, and then they would have gotten destroyed, and it would have been this whole, like, how could they possibly lose? He picked all the best players and started 11 attacking midfielders. I can't believe we lost this game. Yeah, Yeah. England. England, I think, yeah, maybe they need a little bit of variety there. He blames Doc, like he did for his taxis. (laughs) The other uh, two that I think might be a little bit worse off would be Belgium. Uh, In terms of bigger European nations, three of their last five uh, have been foreign managers prior to that. The most recent one was in the 1950s. So this is a more recent thing. But I think similar to England, 
I struggle to think, and maybe this is my own ignorance, but I struggle to think of like top flight Belgian managers. Like maybe Vincent Company is getting there, but but I think Mark Vilmots is one who keeps popping up for Belgium and for other national teams that I looked at. I don't know if he's going to be the difference maker they'd be looking for. So well, he already had that job, didn't he? Yeah, that's he what was, I'm saying. He was before Martinez, like, and and then he's been at a few other ones, and I don't think he is like the the top tier that we're looking for. So I think if you're Belgium, bringing in people who can. Yeah, I, I think also get the best out of the talent, but then historically Belgium have been a team that's divided by mm. language and ethnicity, Flemish versus French versus Dutch speakers, I believe. And so to have somebody who doesn't really abide by any of that and isn't beholden to any of that, I think also gets you out of some of those murky divisions that can cause problems as you go. So Belgium is one. The other one would be uh, Paraguay. They're the one that I first thought of. was like, aren't they always managed by people who aren't Paraguayan? And that is pretty much the case. Since 1995, by my count, they've had 16 permanent managers, which is several. Uh, 11 of those have been foreign. Two have been dual national. Most recently, uh, Guillermo Baroschilotto, uh, then Juan Carlos Osorio, Tata Martino, Eduardo Barizzo, the current Chile manager. So uh, Paraguay would be one that I think just because it has been an established pattern of them bringing in foreign managers, maybe they would be better if they focused on more domestic talent. But that's one that I think it would disrupt what they have been doing. So they were on that list as well for me. Yeah, that's a good list. Paraguay's a great shout, Taylor. Not one that I thought of at all for this question, but they do tend to go foreign. Maybe they need mm -hmm. to go Paraguayan that's what I'm because yeah. Yeah. yeah, GBS was terrible with the Galaxy, and I, I honestly don't know what happened to him between now and taking the Portugal. I mean, the Paraguay job, and that obviously did not go well. So I don't know. I think you're onto something. <laughs> I think you're onto something. It is much. Thank you. It is much harder to find ones that would be substantially better or we could say with yeah. confidence would be substantially better uh just because like i think a lot of as i said a lot of the the big nations already do that so like spain have been doing that italy have been doing that germany france all of them argentina the same brazil so it's tough to say that it would have a huge impact i looked at countries where i think it could have an impact and the one that i landed on was ivory coast um they've had i think of their last seven managers dating back to 2012 only one was ivorian Five French managers, so again, a good amount of cultural overlap. Uh, and then Mark Vilmots, I forgot. <laughs> he was at Ivory Coast. I knew he was on my mind for a reason. But it does just make me wonder if you have, like, say, from the Drogba, Didier Zakore generation. I think Didier Zakore has moved into management. I think uh, Colo Torre did unsuccessfully. Uh, but I think if you get more of that generation moving into management, to have... The generation that kind of broke through, that that made big European moves, that were in the spotlight and went to World Cups. I feel like those players becoming managers could have a similar impact to, say, like Riga Bersong taking over Cameroon. So I, I wonder if maybe having the cultural familiarity of not having Sven, lest we forget, he was also Ivory Coast manager. I just can't imagine Sven Goran Eriksson being like, yeah, we all vibe. We have the exact same likes and interests. <laughs> like, I, I just think... Sometimes it can be good to disrupt the, like the culture of the locker room if it is divisive, as it tends to be in Belgium historically. Whereas with every coast, I just wonder if having somebody who's more familiar with the locker room and the the conflict that can arise, but how best to deal with that conflict. Yeah. Drogba being a great example of that. Uh, I, I think that could be very useful for the Ivory Coast. Yeah, I think you can certainly argue that this rule would progress 
a lot of national um, programs and associations. But to, to Matt's question, would this make teams better in a football sense? I'm, I'm kind of struggling to come up with any suggestions in, in, in that regard. I was tempted to say Scotland because historically we have somewhat bizarrely produced a lot of the best managers in, in soccer history. But uh, making it so that national teams could only be coached by native managers doesn't mean that Alex Ferguson is taking over Scotland rather than Bertie Votes in 2002. You actually need to persuade these people to take the job. We're not taking Ferguson from Manchester United. Also, Ferguson was already Scotland manager once before in 1986 and so was Jock Steen another one of our legends and Scotland were still rubbish so uh, yeah, yeah I'm not sure that would that would actually change much for us it's a very good point Graham because I, I think the depressing reality is that if you made it you have to be managed by somebody uh, who is from that country or eligible to represent that country we assume that it would be like oh yeah you're getting Ferguson for Scotland you're getting the best manager for each country you're, you're getting uh, Pep for Spain but in reality as we've seen with the Spanish FA, you're probably getting a little bit of cronyism and the people who are willing to take the gig and have connections. And I'm not sure that's going to work out that well either. So maybe just maybe it wouldn't be the best idea. I'm glad we're not going to uh, to go this route, at least not yet. We'll see what Gianni Infantino does. Uh, while we ponder that depressing reality, uh, we're going to take one more break and then we'll be back with our final two questions. Today's episode is brought to you by Ibotta, who are asking if you are finally taking that summer vacation that you've been planning on, and if so, are you dreading buying all the necessities before you get on the road? My wife and I just did that vacation, and the answer to the second question is yes. Uh, If so, if that's the answer for you, it's time to stop spending your hard-earned money without getting anything in return. Enter Ibotta. Ibotta gives you cash back on hundreds of grocery items from produce to personal care to pantry goods so you can make sure you're beating inflation no matter what you're purchasing. Either link your loyalty account or upload your receipt after you shop and get cash back. It's just that easy. The average Ibotta user earns $120 per year that could cover the cost of an entire shopping trip. Or you could use your cash back to buy that flight you've been eyeing, that game you've been dying to go to, or that fancy dinner you've been craving. Or just ordering in two pizzas, which can itself be the price of a fancy dinner. Other apps give you points that don't amount to much, but with Ibotta, you get real cash back that you can cash out to your bank account, PayPal, or gift cards. You can earn cash back on hundreds of online brands and retailers when you start with Ibotta, including Lowe's, Macy's, Sephora, Best Buy, and more. Right now, Ibotta is offering our listeners $5 just for trying Ibotta using code TSS when you register. Just go to the App Store or Google Play Store and download the free Ibotta app and use code TSS, that's I-B-O-T-T-A, in the Google Play or App Store, and use code TSS. Today's episode is brought to you by our old friends, Mac Weldon. Wouldn't it be nice if we could have things both ways, like a zero-calorie cheeseburger, internet ads in March that weren't just reminders to do your taxes, a dog that never needs walking after midnight when it's cold, a Manchester United that is consistently good instead of their current scattershot approach, Well, we tend to think of clothing as an either-or situation as well. People think looking sharp means starchy Oxfords and stiff chinos rather than effortless comfort. But it's possible to have it both ways. Mack Weldon makes timeless apparel with modern performance fabrics for guys who want to look and feel sharp without sacrificing comfort. 
From their light-as-air underwear to innovative anti-odor tees and versatile yet comfortable pants, Mack Weldon has a full range of clothes that never go out of style. I got a few things recently, including a long-sleeve polo, which I love, uh, maybe the most comfortable t-shirt, which I also love, and my new favorite sweatpants, the Ace sweatpant. It's exactly what I described above, comfort and versatile, but still stylish. It's the type of sweatpant I can wear to pick up my kids from daycare and not think... I'm now wearing sweatpants in public. The other parents will judge me. Now I just think, judge away, nerds, because you will never be this comfortable unless you're also wearing a pair, in which case, high five. Mack Weldon is not flashy. It's just classic, always in style, and made from the world's most comfortable performance materials. They're designed to fit both your style and the demands of modern life. So get timeless looks with modern comfort from Mack Weldon. Go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off your first order with promo code TSS. That's M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N.com, promo code TSS to get 20% off your first order. Thank you to Mack Weldon for sponsoring today's episode. Welcome back to the Total Soccer Show. We've got a very good question, slightly downer question, but a very interesting question and one that I hadn't really spent a lot of time thinking about until it came in from John Spann. What is going on with Zach Steffen? Joe, coming to you uh, to start with this one. He was once the clear number one for the USMNT, but his stock appears to be at an all-time low. Why didn't things work out at City? Where should he move next? What role is he likely to play in this next cycle? So to give a little bit of background, Joe, why were we, or at least I, you can speak for me in this one. You don't have to speak for yourself. Why was I excited about Zach Steffen uh, going back a couple years? Yeah, so Matt Turner is is really, really good. He's the best shot stopper in the whole pool. I love Matt Turner. Oh, my bad. Sorry. That's not right. Um, Zach Steffen, I think the, the I whole mean, excitement... He's part of the answer. He is, he is definitely part of the answer. He is part of the answer. I, it's too easy. The Matt is too easy. Anyway, setting that aside. Yeah, so the timeline on Stefan to run through some of the background. He has a quick jaunt overseas that I had forgotten about. Comes back to the United States. Breaks out really with the Columbus crew. 21, 22, 23 years old at the time. Becomes a starter there. And his time starting there works out really well with Greg Berhalter taking over the U.S. men's national team in 2019. He has his first game, Berhalter, in, I guess it would have been February of that year. And so all of a sudden, he's kind of ushered into or chosen as Berhalter's number one with the U.S. men's national team. Also in 2019, huge news in American soccer transfers, he goes over to Manchester City, which is still his club now, four plus years later. But in the summer window, he signs for Manchester City that year, goes out on loan to Fortuna Dusseldorf in the Bundesliga, mm. doesn't do terribly, doesn't do great, but it's not a terrible thing for a goalkeeper coming and getting his first taste of European action. Then goes back to Manchester City. Then there's a, a loan this past season to Middlesbrough where he plays a ton, started 42 games for Middlesbrough. And now we are at the present day where Zach Steffen mm. we thought would move, but it's still with Manchester City. Joe, thank you for the summary of, of how we got to where we are. A couple things to add from my side. I remembered this being like Stefan was the number one and then Turner sort of slowly overtook, but, but I, and, and then eventually became the number one and Stefan kind of fell by the wayside. And Joe, it took this question for me to remember that we had multiple conversations about like, don't be surprised, U.S. fans, if Turner, if Turner comes, comes back, if Stefan comes back and Stefan is starting and Turner is not. We thought that there was a chance that Stefan was going to be Berhalter's number one, even though he was missing time. Um, but it is the case that it sort of was 
Turner playing really well combined with injury. Uh, I think Stefan would have started all of the first round of qualifying games, but he woke up with back spasms one day. So Turner gets the start that day. Turner looks good. And so you start to have a little bit of a like, oh, Matt Turner could do some things here. And then uh, to my mind, it's a lot of injuries for Zach Stefan. So that loan to Dusseldorf you mentioned, he is a very reliable and consistent player for them. Uh, Lutz van and Stiel, when he was the sporting director there, talked about how important he was and how they were interested in making it a long-term signing, but he wasn't sure if they could financially compete with Man City, which is an accurate thing to say for the technical director of Fortuna Dusseldorf. Uh, but then Stefan picks up an injury. They end up not making the loan permanent then. Uh, there's a conversation that if uh, Dusseldorf had stayed up, then maybe they would have made that permanent, or at least it would have been another, another loan move, but they get relegated that season. So now he doesn't want to go play in Budicicca's, uh 2. So Stefan stays with City, and I think this is another sort of negative moment. He's the backup, and that's cool, but he's also the backup and not starting nearly as much, not playing as regularly. And I think that can be okay. Weirdly, I think it can be okay if you're, say, Matt Turner, where you go to Arsenal and you're not starting, but you're adding new elements to your game. Whereas for Stefan, I think we wanted to see more of him develop the distribution, certainly, but also just become a more reliable shot stopper. And I, and I think it didn't help his career in that level of development. And then the injuries have continued to play a part. There was conversation that he would have made uh, that loan to Burrow permanent, but he ends up having to have surgery in June. He has uh, knee surgery. So he's now out for three or four months. So once again, we're in a situation where he can't make the move. Uh, maybe he'll move in January if he gets back to some level of fitness, but it feels to me like it's been uh, a combination of injuries and bad timing. And then there's an article, I'm going very long here now. Uh, there's an article uh, Paul Tenorio did for The Athletic uh, talking with, with Stefan. And a key thing that I did not know about is uh, when the U.S. was doing their sort of final tune-up games for the World Cup, this would have been last June, in the summer of June, uh, their summer of 2022, rather, uh, the U.S.'s penultimate camp before the World Cup, Stefan pulled out of contention. At the time, it was announced that it was due to family reasons. Stefan said in this interview that he called out at last minute due to mental health. And and, and I think that was a surprise to Greg Berhalter. And I, and I do think... I think you could criticize Berhalter for this. I don't think I will. Uh, is the idea that like if you're relying on this person to come in and maybe compete for the number one job and they call and say they're just not up for it, um, I want to respect mental health. And if people need breaks and, and need time off or need time away from the game, I, I totally respect that. But I think it has to factor into the equation at the same time of what happens if this player says they're not ready to go for the World Cup. And do you want to have a goalkeeper who in there who you can – trust and get some more reps and see what they can do. And it seems like that's what he went with. So with all that said, I don't think we're in a position where like Stefan is just like done now and, and, and cast aside. I think it was very much like, okay, I'll let him get his head right. I'll let him get his club situation right. And then he'll be back in contention in the cycle. And I think that's where we find ourselves. He's still injured, but my guess would be that when he's fully fit, he is back competing for that starting spot. I, I do not agree with that last bit. I, I agree with so much of the rest of it. I, I think the, the starting spot, I know I was joking about it earlier, it is Matt Turner's to lose. Like he is starting, You're right. he's I a starting goalkeeper in the Premier League. But I should what say he's I think in the you group. would agree with, group. Yeah. yes, mm -hmm. I think he's still going to be in the group. I, I honestly, though, don't think he'll make a lot of appearances for the U.S., even in camps between now and the next World Cup and, and from now until the end of his career, uh, in large part because I think we've sort of realized over time that he's just not a great goalkeeper, right? The things that we wanted to see Zach Steffen go and improve on various loans from Man City was really the shot-stopping aspect and the, and the distribution as well. Taylor, you talked about that. The reality is he either hasn't had the time or just hasn't doesn't have the skill set 
to do those things at an elite level. Like there's a reason why he never found a permanent move, even within injuries, to a good club in Europe at a top level is because he, he just doesn't quite have that ability. He's a good goalkeeper in the grand scheme of goalkeepers, but in terms of professionals, even ones in the U.S. pool, Zach Steffen, I think, has been bypassed by not just Matt Turner, but probably a couple of others as well. It is a, a bad situation for him in the timing of camps and, and some issues that, that were going on with him that he understandably wanted to take care of that Paul Tenorio writes about in that article leading into the World Cup. It's a difficult set of circumstances for Zach Steffen. I'm not trying to deny that, but I'm not expecting him to play much of a role with the U.S., even though I do agree, Taylor, when he's back and playing again, and, and I would expect that to happen. Maybe he moves in January. Maybe this is kind of a lost year for him and goalkeepers can recover because they're playing a different sport than everybody else. That's all fine. I think we're going to see Zach Steffen be involved in some conversations, but I don't know that we'll see a lot more of him going forward. Joe, just one uh, agreed on that. Uh, one quick question for you, because I like lost steam saying it. And I want to make sure that I was correct. So when we're talking to Stefan Turner, going back to when it was like, who's going to be the number one, it was basically Turner, the better shot stopper, but not as good in distribution. Stefan right. better in distribution, not as good of a shot stopper, right? That was the general consensus. And I think right. that still stands true today. Right. But so that's where the idea that like Turner goes to Arsenal, where even if he's not starting, you have to believe he's working on distribution and training, whereas Stefan goes to City is working on distribution, but isn't getting those reps as a shot stopper. So I think that was was a point I was trying to make, but maybe made too quickly. It's it's difficult, right? And, and this is an area where goalkeeping is just kind of complicated. And like I said, it's kind of its own sport. I actually think you can work on your shot stopping and training too. Like the ball striking technique mm -hmm. is going to be a little bit better. The coaching you're going to be getting at Man City is going to be better than what he got with the Columbus crew, right? There's no doubt there. So I think both players in, in moving had an opportunity to get better. The difference is Matt Turner's skill as a really, really good shot stopper is so much more valuable than Zach Steffen's skill as a mediocre to slightly below average shot stopper and like decent with his feet, which is still not something that a lot of goalkeepers have in a U.S. jersey. But his skill is just not quite as useful. And I think between that and injuries and Turner really actually now finding his place and getting minutes, all of those things have led to a slippery slope for Zach Steffen, at least with the national team. Yeah, I also think that if you were to ask Man City whether this signing has worked out for them, they might they might have a different answer to how John sees it with with his with his question about Stefan. He says, "Why didn't things work out for Stefan at City?" And I and I get why John would say it hasn't worked out for Stefan at City because he hasn't become the the kind of next level goalkeeper that the US wanted him to be. But I think if you look at City's recruitment plan for players like Stefan. I, I think it's kind of gone to plan for them. I don't think he was ever signed to be a realistic competitor for Ederson. I think he was a number two who City thought they would ultimately loan out and then sell on. He was essentially the goalkeeping Jack Harrison for them. For them. Now, now, obviously, the last part might be where it has gone a little bit wrong in that Stefan maybe doesn't have that many suitors right now if he was to be sold at this point. Maybe he, maybe Millsborough wanted to sign him permanently at the end of last season. Maybe injuries have got in the way in that regard. But... Yeah, I, I think the expectation that was placed on him going to Manchester City was maybe a little bit wide of the mark. I'm not sure he was ever realistically going to um, meet those expectations. I think the most disappointing thing, I agree with the sentiment that Joe and Taylor, the two of you have put across, the most disappointing thing is that he hasn't really developed in that time in Manchester City. That was the hope that even if, it, even if he's not 
going to be Man City's number one goalkeeper. He comes out the other side and he essentially does what Matt Turner did in a year at Arsenal. Matt Turner, I think, coming from MLS, doesn't become Nottingham Forest number one goalkeeper in the Premier League. He spends a year at Arsenal. He impresses for the US. There's clearly some scouting that's going on there that says he's developed his game to a point that he is a starting goalkeeper in the Premier League. Nottingham Forest signs him and now he's playing in the Premier League first team football. That's essentially what Zach Steffen wanted out of Man City and that hasn't happened. Yeah, and, and to really drive it home, uh, I was I was reading some Middlesbrough uh, message boards as you do, Middlesbrough, and they were talking about like how it's worth bringing him back because of how good he is on the ball and how much he facilitates uh, the attacking play that Michael Carrick wants. And, and multiple people pointed out, like even Carrick has talked about, like yeah, he's gonna have a howler now and then, but it's worth it for the distribution he provides. And like right there, it feels a little bit like yeah, he still hasn't really fully developed in the way that we were hoping maybe he would. So. He's 28 now as well. Yeah. Yeah. It's not like he's... I don't really know if he's going to add much more to his game at this point at 28 years old. Eh, I mean, you know, that's still relatively young for a keeper. He could play into his late 30s. So I, I think there's still an opportunity. I think it's just a matter of staying fit, which is no small feat, and then finding the right club where he's going to play and be appreciated, and then getting into the the camps more regularly, and then once you're in there, performing. So it's it's a it's a difficult road back i would say and i think joe you're dead on that like matt turner is the number one until matt turner doesn't want to be the number one anymore but there is still a conversation about who is the number two who's the number three so maybe he's involved in there as we go but uh, we won't know until he's back from injury so that's at least a couple months off before we even start to have those conversations really enjoyed that question really enjoyed this final question from john span uh to close it out Graham, if you could add a rule or feature from another sport to soccer to make it more entertaining, what would it be? For example, extending the playing surface behind the goal, like in lacrosse or hockey, a two-point line in soccer, like the three-point line in basketball, a penalty box or sin bin in hockey, what would it be? I think where I landed with uh, this one was, I looked at F1, um, so (laughs) I watch a bit of F1. It stops. uh, And all the players are going to be in cars. No, I'm kidding on. A rule that they used to have... They, so they only did this for one season, uh, I believe, because it was hugely unpopular. So that that bodes well for what I'm about to say. But they used to offer double points for the final race of the season. So basically, the idea was to create as much drama as possible, push all the drama to the final race of the season. Next goal wins, basically. Um, Essentially, yeah. kind of, yeah. So imagine you're in the relegation zone going into the final day of the season. You're four points adrift. Ordinarily, you're done in that situation in the, in the current format that we have. But if you double points for a win, the, the opportunity to save yourself is still there. You'd have more movement up and down the table on the final day. Not, nothing too outrageous. You're not going to have someone going from the relegation zone up into the top four or anything like that. But you would surely have more desperation and chaos and all that good stuff that I watch football for. So yeah, I kind of think I'd like this. All right. Uh, Graham has avoided the obvious answer of Sinbin, which is the correct answer. Uh, penalty box is the number one thing that we should implement, and I will continue to shout that from the rooftops. Joe, uh, Sinbin aside, uh, what would you like to see brought in? Right. Obviously, Sinbin was number one, and Graham's F1 thing weirdly was number two on my list. I didn't oh, put okay. it there. I don't know how it got there. <laughs> Graham's <laughs> weird F1 thing was in my notes as well, uh, strangely. Yeah. Uh, but mine, my, my number three option, I guess, is another step in my quest to make extra time better or to get rid of it. And in this case, I've decided to get it better. That is where my brain goes every single time when there's a rules-based question. We really are playing to type here. (laughs) It is a huge mission in my life, guys. I want to see extra time games decided by college football-style possessions. So let me explain. Graham, this is for you, but also for the listener. In, In NCAA football, 
in overtime, each team doesn't start, you know, you don't go through the kickoff process and you have to drive all the way up the field. Each team starts on the opponent's 25-yard line. So let's say Graham's team's playing Taylor's team. Graham, you're on offense. You won the coin toss, whatever. You start 25 yards away from Taylor's end zone. Let's say you go and score and then Taylor gets the ball. He does the same thing, driving towards your end zone. And he scores. And if things are still tied, after each one of you has had a, a drive, you do it again. And if things are still tied then you have to go for two instead of just kicking the extra point. If things are still tied at that point, so that's after three go rounds of this, then you just trade two point conversion. So you start like, actually, I don't know what the, the yards away from goal is, but you start you know, 10 yards a little bit less away from goal and you just run a play. And if you score your play, then Taylor's gonna go and he'll try to score his play. And if he misses, then you win. And if he scores, then you do it again. I think that is number one, just an objectively awesome way to end a sporting event. Like that's so really fun to find out how you're going to make this work for soccer, <laughs> so though, because I totally agree with you. I think the the silence you're hearing from both ends of this is, and how does that work for soccer? I just yeah. didn't I didn't explain it well enough for Graham, so I think that's the silence for Graham. For soccer, I want to do it with free kicks. It's not quite the same thing. It's not going to have quite the same electric atmosphere but we'll start at 30 yards out instead of 25 just to give us a little extra we're gonna do 30 yards so graham's gonna take a 30 yarder than taylor then we'll do 25 if we're still tied and then we'll do 18 and we're not going to go any further or any any closer to goal than 18 we're not doing penalties or any of that stuff free kicks only and you just take turns trying to hit a banger i feel like that's going to be a more entertaining way than ending soccer games with the extra time format that we have currently that's what i want folks uh, not opposed, but it requires cross-examination. Number one, is this a, like, 30 yards from goal, you're you're shooting on frame, or is it a 50 yards from goal from, like, the channel and you're playing a ball into the box? No, 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 no. I don't want any, I don't want any indirect set pieces. Set pieces, direct set pieces only. Those are the classy ones, right? Those are the classy set pieces. So direct free kick. I want right. to end games so, with classy set pieces. So it's basically whoever has James Ward-Prowse in it is, is, is going to win. That's what we're doing. Graham, how, how do you feel about this approach? So set pieces instead of penalty kicks. I feel like Joe just wants the MLS skill challenge jo- to decide uh, By the way, to decide matches. I th- oh, Joe dropped before I could take a screen grab. Sorry, Joe froze <laughs> in the most hilarious position I think I've ever seen someone freeze. So anyway, Graham, please continue as Joe rejoins. <laughs> yeah, I'm in favor of a skills challenge decide- deciding matches. Just I'm not sure if we should limit that to what was the ski ball one that they have in, in the MLS skill challenge. <laughs> yes, that one's not, not even that, that good. It's yes. not even that good. Yes, uh, we should do the volley challenge just to watch Kai Havertz not score volleys again. That would be fun. <laughs> Joe, I was laughing. You dropped and came back in, but I couldn't get the screen grab in time. You froze. Uh, this will be great for listeners, but I'm doing it for you all. This is how you were frozen. Nice. I don't know why, but it was so terrific. I hate how true that is. Also, I, I'm willing to acknowledge I don't have the perfect solution here, but I, I just love that college football style ending so much. And if we could do something soccery like that, just to run up penalties, isn't it? That's just what it. That's just what it is. It's just to run up penalties. Darn yeah, it. I kind of like free kicks. I think that could be cool. Do you have people? Do people still have to stand in the wall, or do you bring out like the fake walls that you get, uh, like the cardboard cutout walls? Let's make people stand in the wall so it feels a okay. little bit like soccer. I like it. I like it a lot. I I, <laughs> I still want it to be the the F one uh, style that Graham had, but it is just like you can make adjustments to the player, but they have to run in, and then a team runs out and like changes the boots really quickly, like in under two seconds, and away yes. we go. I think that should be allowed. Uh, More boot changes is exactly what soccer exactly. needs. That's what the, that's what that's what the people want. Yeah, get an orange slice I had another in idea. there. <laughs> 
And so in golf, I quite like the handicap system, where if you're good, you start off on a certain number yeah. of strokes. So how about in cup competitions, top division teams start off on a, in a in a handicap. So if you're Man City and you draw Wimbledon, Minus for one. example, because they're in League Two, three divisions below, they start three nil up. If it's a championship team, one nil up. Three nil is so much. Are you telling me that Man City against Wimbledon wouldn't be able to overturn a 3-0 advantage I mean, in that game? The Chelsea-Wimbledon example from earlier in this year is one I'm tempted to use now. I think Wimbledon lost by one, but I'm reminded <laughs> that it is Chelsea and not Manchester City. So, Graham, you might just be right. You might just be right. Exactly. I am intrigued to John's question by the idea of, uh, like in hockey or lacrosse, being able to dribble behind the goal. I think that could create some pretty fun chaos. And, oh. and uh, but Pep has awoken from his slumber right now. <laughs> yes, More field. Yes. We can build up yes. from behind the goal, not just on oh the goal God. line. Oh, yeah. That's the good Off- stuff. Offside gets a little trickier there, I think. But I'm sure we can find a way to make it work. Uh, thank you, gentlemen, for answering that one and all of these questions. Thank you to everyone who submitted questions. I love our list of questions shows. Uh, we covered a lot of ground. Uh, Graham Ruffin, thank you for covering that ground with me from your uh, luxurious fort, as always. <laughs> thank you, Taylor Rockwell. Super luxurious today. I've got new pillows. Ooh, fancy. Is your daughter ever confused how your work entails making a pillow fort? Because I feel like my daughter would be. Yeah, my, Sophie was one day asked at nursery, what does, what does mommy do? Oh, mommy works on the radio. What does, what does daddy do? He watches TV and sits under the bed, <laughs> was the answer. <laughs> I mean, it's true. Oh, that's terrific. Uh, Joe Lowry, thank you for joining us all the way from Rome. I hope you have a wonderful time today, my friend. Thank you. I am on my way to look for more Italian inefficiencies. So I'll keep everybody posted <laughs> in the Slack and then we'll talk oh. about it on the show. The Ryan Bailey Apology Tour has become Ryan Bailey in Italy (laughs) 2.0. Listeners, thanks so much for listening. We'll talk to you again this week. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.